there must be something more to life. Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by my co-host Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, New Zealand. And our very special guest back on the show with us this time is Os Guinness, who's here to talk about his new IVP America book called Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. And I quote from the publicity, Oz tells stories of people who experienced signals of transcendence and followed them to find new meaning and purpose in life. End of quote. Oz is the author or editor of more than 35 books. He's the founder of the Trinity Forum. He's a prominent social critic and he speaks all over the world in all sorts of places. And Oz joins us again from the States. Oz, hi, welcome back. Thank you, Brent and Ian. A great privilege to be with you again. The privilege is ours as always. Now, this is a fascinating uh, read, but what, I wonder, Oz, are signals of transcendence? Well, you know, I first came across the idea from the person who became my academic tutor and then my friend, Peter Berger. And he points out how many, many, if not most people, have profound experiences which, as they think about them, puncture whatever they used to believe and point towards something which, if true, would make all the difference. And they set out to be seekers, to search for that whatever the signal means. So these are 10 stories of different people who've had that experience. Yeah, I was fascinated by this. Do we know how widespread the signals are in terms of how many people have had them or get them or receive them? Not universal, but far more than people realize. I came to faith, but in my way, not through a signal. But friends of mine have taken, and I've used them too. We take the, the story of Kenneth Clark, one of the stories there, the art historian. He describes how in a church in Florence, looking at some incredible paintings, he was overcome and felt the finger of God for three months. The experience was with him. Now, in his case, he brushed it off. It would have been embarrassing, he thought, to go back to London and own up to something like that. And he had a mistress. It would have been morally a little challenging. But he experienced it. And when my friend did it with, say, 30 CEOs, he asked if any of them had had their own equivalents. Almost every single one said yes. Wow. And Kenneth Clark's interesting because I had read that account in, I think it's in one of his autobiographies, isn't it? And But I hadn't realized that he did follow through on the signal, which I was I didn't know until I read your book just the other day. So that's, that's interesting. Now, these signals, Oz, what are we talking about? We're not talking about heavenly visions or anything like that. What, what, are, what sort of things are? What sort of things did these ten people experience? We're going to come on and talk about a few of them in, in order in a minute. But well, my favorite in the story, the one I've used most, is W. H. Auden, one of the great poets of the last century. Left Oxford, young, radical, atheist, left-wing, gay. Before it was popular. He fought on the Republican side in the Spanish Civil War against Franco. But he left Europe to get over to the U.S. to be free when the war broke out. No television, 1939, 1940. So you had to go to your local cinema to see the occasional documentaries. And he lived in the Upper East Side. Unbeknownst to him, most of the audience in his local cinema were German. Now, of course, America was neutral. So you had Britain fighting Germany, Germany fighting Britain, and America was neutral. 
So the Germans in the audience were obviously on the side of their own people. And to be fair to them, they didn't know things like the Holocaust then. But the film was of Nazi stormtroopers bayoneting women and children brutally. And the, cra- the, the, the German crowd egging them on, go for it, go for it, kill them, kill them. Horton sat there in the darkness. His worldview totally turned upside down in five minutes. Yes. First, he said, I knew humans were evil. I'd always thought we were good. A bit of better politics and psychology and education. Or, no, no, this was evil. But then he said, I was in trouble. To say it was absolutely evil, which it obviously was, you needed an absolute. And all my life as an intellectual, absolutes were for fundamentalists and old fogies. Everything was relative. But this was not relative. He said later, I left the cinema a seeker after an unconditional absolute and met Jesus. Mm. Now, he didn't see a vision. No. He just realized his, his earlier views were punctured, and what he experienced pointed to something else which would need to be true. Yes. Now, you write in the book about a, a quote, a, I quote this, a gigantic global conspiracy against transcendence. I, I like that. But what do you mean by that? What, in what way are we facing, are facing a gigantic global conspiracy against transcendence? I don't mean, I don't mean conscious. No, but I know. Think I know. for a minute. In the world of the Bible, but not only the Bible, in most human history, whether you are pagans or Hindus, Buddhists or Christians or Jews, The unseen was not unreal. The unseen was actually more real. People understood things as down to earth as business or sex in the light of the unseen world. But a feature of modernity, our big modern world, is that the unseen is now considered unreal. And we're very close to the prisoners in Plato's famous parable of the cave. All they saw was the flickering shadows in the wall. And so the man who escaped the cave and Wow, the sunshine outside. When he came back to tell them, they didn't want to hear. They thought he was a madman. And you can see, Peter Berger says, we are living in a world without windows. Or G.K. Chesterton, the the average worldview of a person is like a middle-aged person after a good lunch, drowsy, and so on. That's what I mean. Mm. We need to break out of this secular, materialistic conspiracy. Yes. Lewis Max Weber called it disenchantment. Lewis called the opposite re-enchantment. And that's what we need today. Yeah. Do you, yes. Do you think that we've lost our sense of wonder as human beings increasingly in the world today? Of course. Now, wonder, of course, is often seen as the birthplace of philosophy. Or you think of kids with their sense of wonder and curiosity and question asking. But in the modern world, we're living almost completely in our big cities with man-made artificial surrounding. You know, my, we live in Washington, D.C. at the moment. When we went up to our son's home in Montauk, Long Island, and he lives 50 feet from the cliffs overlooking the ocean, my wife just said it restored the sense of wonder. The sunrises, the sunsets, the ocean, and so on. The incredible trees, wonders restored. You're living with nature and not just the man-made and the artificial. Yes, Rido. Um, your comments, questions for Oz, please. Uh, that, that's been something that I, I've considered quite a bit. Is that you know we we've created a world of light, you know, because there's there's barely a moment, a day or night, where you you can't escape light, and so we've lost sight of the sky. 
uh, you know, kind of entirely. And you just wonder ancient cultures, you know, kind of where it's pitch black outside of cities, you just look up and you kind of, there's this huge sky above you. And you, I just wonder if that's really pushed back our sense of wonder and just that maybe I'm not the biggest thing in this universe. You know, kind of maybe I'm, I'm not the centre of this whole thing, but there is something beyond me that I can experience and actually relate to as well. But then you add modern things like, say, the social media. Mm-hmm. You know, the current term for teenagers in America is screenagers <laughs> because of their total dependency on the triple screen gazing that makes up most of their lives. Well, this is what Blaise Pascal calls diversions. There was busy, entertaining distractions that stop us thinking and caring enough to wonder what life's about. And that's why, even although we do that assiduously in the modern world, people still have the break-in of these signals of transcendence, and those who listen to them and follow them break out. Okay, well, let's come on and talk about (coughs) the characters you have in in your book, because all the stories are fascinated me uh, it's starting with well let's start with gk chesterton i know i know he's not the first example you have in the person you have in the book but you mentioned that he was stopped in his tracks by a dandelion now <laughs> it reminds me of reminds me of my, my neighbor who's always finding dandelions in his garden but anyway um how was uh, how was chesterton stopped in his tracks by a dandelion and what what effect did it have on him well, you know, Chesterton loved to put things in surprising, paradoxical, upside-down ways to help people to think, shake them out of it. Or as he put it, you turn someone upside down and shake them by the legs until the change drops out of their pockets. <laughs> you know, think back to Chesterton's life. He grew up in West London, very comfortable middle-class circumstances, but he was artistic. Most of his friends went to Oxford and Cambridge, But as an artist, he went to the Slade School of Art in London. And it was very like, this is the 1890s, very like what we call postmodernism today. Bitter, debunking, cynical, nihilistic. And Chesterton admits he was flirting with nihilism, painting the occult, so on. And then he says, though, one thing stopped him. He was stopped in his tracks by a dandelion. In other words, the world was broken. It was ruined, dark, sorry. Everything he knew about that was true, but it was only half the truth. The world also had beauty, and he's not talking about the birth of a baby or a Mozart sonata, a humble dandelion, a weed, but it had a beauty. So he says, and he's now still a young man, how could you explain both the brokenness and the beauty? So he began to search, looking for a faith that was bifocal, that could explain both well. And his excitement when he came across the Christian faith with its high view of creation, wonder, beauty, ascetics, and so on, but its immense realism about sin and brokenness, it's almost like Eureka as he sees everything beginning to fall into place. And he, But the signal was that stopped in his tracks by a dandelion. And how did he proceed from the signal? Because you talk, you write in the book about people being given signals of transcendence, but then we've got to do something about them. What did Chesterton go on to do about his signals? Well, he thought and thought and thought and read and read and read. Now, when you come to C.S. Lewis, there was more than a decade between the signal of transcendence and his discovering the answer. With W.H. Auden, it was much, much quicker, just a few months. 
And you can see there's no time limit or whatever on that. But people who are triggered by a signal and then start to search, they're just looking everywhere and everywhere until they find an answer. For Malcolm Mugger, it's used many decades. Mm. We'll come on to talk about Muggeridge in a minute, but let's carry on with the C.S. Lewis strand. How did C.S. Lewis turn from his atheism? What were his signals of transcendence? Well, the trouble with Lewis is he's so well known as a Christian writer that people forget what a hardcore atheist he was. Mm. Going back to the death of his mother through cancer and the horror of the carnage that he and Tolkien saw and others in World War I, And he knew many of the best atheists in the country, and he was an atheist. He knew it. His signal? He was surprised by joy. He kept having these experiences which filled him with joy, not pleasure. Pleasure is the five senses. Not happiness. Happiness is circumstances. Joy. Unsatisfied desires, as he put it, more desirable than any satisfaction. So he begins to look for the answer to this incredible thing, joy. Now, Nietzsche said joy wills eternity. But sadly, Nietzsche didn't follow that through himself. But Lewis did. And it was more than a decade later that he came to faith in Jesus. He writes, if I remember rightly, about the blue flower of the romantics, joy, zenzucht, the sense of longing. Uh, It was all part of it, wasn't it? Why was joy so important to Lewis? Because he writes a lot about just finding joy in things. He finds joy in northern sagas and joy in books and joy in all sorts of things. Well, clearly from his boyhood onwards, that sense of joy was what really inspired him most of all. And of course, for him, he eventually found love in a divorcee whose name was Joy. Mm. He was doubly surprised by joy. In other words, every person is touched by a different signal. So Auden, it was that passion for justice. Lewis, it's joy. Kenneth Clark, it was beauty. And you can go on down the line. They're all different. I love the story. People who say, well, W.H. Orton, that's a rather dark story. We're not all like Nazis. Well, I love the story that follows that of, of Philip Halley. Mm, yes. A Jew brought up in Chicago, violence all around him, went to World War II and became an expert in the horrific medical experiments of the Nazi doctors and then became a scholar for more than 20 years trying to understand that. But it led him to total depression and on the verge of suicide. And again, to cut a long story short, one day, sitting thinking of suicide, he picked up a pamphlet and all the books in his study. And as he read it, he thought, oh my word, I've got a fly in my eye. And he put his finger up, it was a tear. He was reading the story of the Huguenot villagers in Le Chambon in France, who rescued and saved more than 5,000 Jewish children. And as he looked in the story, he said there was a heart-cracking goodness about those people. I love that. In other Mm -hmm. words, it wasn't the horror of the darkness like Auden. What Halley called the heart-cracking goodness, there was the contrast to the horror of Nazi evil. And that set him off to search. Yeah, do you think God, um, how can I put this, do you think God gives certain people certain types of signals? In other words, he matches the signal to the personality and the longing in the character of the person. I think that's so. Mm. So we often describe the journey to faith almost in purely human terms. The seeker searches, and the Lord comes in 
only at the point of faith. And I think that's wrong. Mm. The great Jewish rabbis say, no, it's not man's search for God. It is God's search for man. And so the signals of transcendence are the Lord breaking into us pretty early on in the search. But mm. we've got to follow it. Yes. Now, for Winsor Elliott, uh, the fashion model of the 60s, her signal of transcendence was particularly fascinated me, Salvador Dali's cheetah. Now, <laughs> I can imagine Salvador Dali having a magnificent cheetah, but how did Salvador Dali's cheetah stir, uh, stir Winsor Elliott? Well, she grew up in Southern California and did extraordinarily well, rocketing from San Francisco modeling on a whim to Paris, to New York, and was in the front cover of Vogue and was a Ford girl when Eileen Ford was the greatest modeling agency in the world. And at the age of 19 and 20, she was engaged to a multimillionaire French baron, her age too, handsome, windsurf champion of the world, and so on. And they would go from New York to Paris for the weekend and party with the elites. And one, and she grew up in an atheist background, I should say, one weekend, she was at a party in Salvador Dali's apartment in the Hotel Maurice. And as he had his pet cheetah, a painted ocelot, uh, in, in the uh, room. And it was pacing around between the various guests. And uh, Windsor looked at it, and suddenly she was struck with a hor horrendous thought. This lithe, beautiful creature de-sex, de-clawed, de, de everything was a caricature of what it was born to be. And then she looked at the people, all the elites of Europe, Duke and Duchess of Windsor, people like that, Pablo Picasso, they looked like caricatures too. And it was as if the ceiling, or rather the floor opened up, and she was looking into an abyss of meaning. And that set her off to search for the answer to life. And, and where did she go? How did the journey develop for her? She came to faith eventually, but went back to New York. She was with Vogue magazine and so on. People said, I know the person for you. And they sent her to a medium with horrendous dark things spiritually because she knew no Christians. And one day after two years of an absolutely fruitless search, she was walking up Park Avenue and she prayed, God, I don't know if you're there, but if you're there, I can't find you. You'll have to find me. Now, amazingly, six months to the day, her mother, whom she couldn't stand, came to live with her as she was dying with cancer. And her mother had just become a Christian. Oh. And Winsor said to her, all right, don't talk to me about that. I'm glad for you. A wonderful faith to die by because it has eternal life. But don't talk to me. But one day her mother had two people in there uh, welcoming her to New York. And they were looking at Windsor's portfolio. And at one point they gasped. And Windsor said, why do you, she looked at the photograph and said, oh, I don't particularly like that photo either, but why did you gasp? They said, well, you may not believe this, but six months ago we were in Seattle and we're Christians and on our way to a prayer meeting. And the Lord told us as we we're going out of the checkout, buy that magazine and pray for the girl on the cover. Oh, gosh. And they put it down in the fellowship group and they prayed for her and they had prayed every day for six months. That was the exact day she had prayed, Lord, if you're there, I can't find you. You'll have to find me. And in talking to them, they eventually put her on to Billy Graham, and she came to faith. And how did the two of you meet? Well, we met later because she, fortunately for me, broke her engagement and uh, 
in her desire to put some foundations in her life, came over to Labrie, where I was working. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. What a f- absolutely incredible, incredible account. Before we close, we better. Oh, I want to ask about Malcolm Muggeridge. An interesting. I, did, I knew very little about Muggeridge. What was Malcolm Muggeridge's signal of transcendence? Well, I knew Muggeridge pretty well towards the end of his life. An amazing man. He grew up in left wing circles, Fabian circles. And when he graduated from Cambridge, he said he was disillusioned with education, the worst years of his life, which I, as an Oxford man, find rather funny. He then went to the Soviet Union, and he was the first person to see through Stalin and report on the reality of the famine and oh, so on. Yes. And he went to India. So he was disillusioned with education, disillusioned with politics, then disillusioned with religion, as he saw it in India. So when World War II broke out, he had nothing. And he was turned down by the army because of his sight and sent out the intelligence service to West Africa, sorry, East Africa. And he was absolutely in despair. And he said one day, there's no point in this war, but I can do something. There's one person I can kill myself. So he said, I'm not gonna uh, do things that would bring bad reputation in my family. I'll drown myself. So he went to the beach, undressed, and swam out into the ocean, thinking this was his last hour in life. But as he was doing so, he turned back over his shoulder and saw the lights of the little town he'd left. And in some extraordinary way, he said it was like a glimpse of light in Plato's cave. It was the call of home. And for the first time in his life, he thought the world is not absurd. There is home. There is order. Now, he was several decades as a searcher before he came to faith in Jesus. But it was that experience of the lights of home that turned him around. Mm. Before we close, Lord Clark, Kenneth Clark, we mentioned the, his passage in his autobiography where he describes having a, an experience of, of beauty, of God. And I hadn't realized until I had until I read your book the other day, preparing for this interview, that he, that Lord Clark actually did come to faith before he before he died. Can you tell us about that? I love that because you read it's his fabulous. memoir. You obviously did. Mm. You you get the clear idea. He brushed it aside. He oh, felt for sure. The of God mm. and brushed it off. Mm. But at his funeral in St James Piccadilly, with all the royalty of the art world there, people like Princess Margaret and so on. Everyone was shocked when an Irish priest got up at the end and said, Lord Clark would like you to know that six months before he died, he was baptized. And people thought, oh, no, this is a, you know, end of life conversion that's absolutely spurious and hoax. Shame on the church for saying that. And then his wife got up and said, no, this is true. He brushed aside the finger of God as a younger man. And then as he thought and thought and thought, came back to it in his last days. I love that. It's mm. never, never too late. No, and, and I loved it too because I, as a, a teenager, I watched um, Civilization on television and Lord Clark was always my inspiration for an arts broadcast. I thought if you're going to present anything on radio television, that's surely the way to do it. That's right. His erudition, his knowledge was phenomenal and uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary man, really. Um, apart from the fact that he managed to collect a fantastic selection of, of uh, paintings for England as well while he was 
about his business. Um, Ian, before we close, um, otherwise I'll talk about, I'll get on to talking about all sorts of other things. Final thoughts, questions for Oz, comments? It's a, it's a great book and just the, the stories are just amazing, you know, kind of hearing about all these different people. One of the things I think that the evangelical church has not done well over the last little while is help foster this idea of wonder. We've kind of really bought into, I think, that materialistic idea of reason, uh, which is not all bad. It's very, it's very important and good for faith, but I think we've pushed wonder to the side. How do we, how do we help foster some of that? You know, I, I get to, I get to hear some of these personal stories as a pastor, people come and ask them how they came to faith and, it's often things like the, you know, the, the, it's beauty or truth or things like that, and that people have just that God has just slowly just been putting on their hearts. Mm-hmm. How do we help with that? Well, you put it well, Ian. Reason is incredibly important, but we also have imagination, and no one's done better than that than C.S. Lewis with his incredibly powerful arguments, but his immensely imaginative stories, and the combination of both is terrific. And of course. Much of the Western world, and I say this against myself, we are too Greek and not enough Hebrew. The Bible itself is not just a story. It's a story with a thousand stories. And there are far more stories like that than there are arguments. Now, arguments important too. Say, the book of Romans is a very powerful, cogent argument. But we need to have both. So I confess, in my early days as an apologist, I was much stronger on the arguments than on the stories. And I think both of them are very, very important. Mm-hmm. And we need to regain the imagination, as you're saying. Final question, Oz, before we close. What do you say to someone who has experienced a signal of transcendence? What's your advice to them? Well, my other book, The Great Quest, sort of picks that up. How does a seeker, a searcher, go through the stages of really examining life and coming to a good conclusion. And so I described there the four stages, time for questions, that's what is set off by a signal. A time for answers, and you look at all the different worldviews, asking which of these is the most adequate in providing an answer for the questions raised by the signal. Thirdly, a time for evidences, not enough to say, this is a wonderful answer. The question then is, okay, but is it also true? And that's especially tough today in the postmodern world. And then the final stage, a time for commitments. It's no use thinking about these things at arm length. A faith will never become real to someone, something they can live existentially on unless they commit themselves to it totally. And that, of course, is the moment when people not just have a signal about the Lord speaking to them, they meet the Lord in reality. Mm. Fascinating. Yes, the book from IVP America is called Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. And you will read far more about these uh, 10 people in the, in the book than um, we've had time to possibly discuss in this podcast. But it's absolutely fascinating. Oz Guinness, once again, sir, thank you so much for your time. Thank you to my co-host, Rido, Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston, North New Zealand. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your time. Well, thank you. What a privilege to be with you both. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. 
to ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.